Well, I've been gone the last, uh, well, three Sundays out of the last four, I was not in town. One of those Sundays I was in town but didn't preach. So I've been out of the pulpit for a month. It's, uh, it's a long time, and it feels so good to be back, so good to be here with you all. One of my hopes, um, as morbid, morbid as this might sound, is to prepare the church for my death. <laughs> Weird, right? In other words, I'm an interim pastor. Jesus is the only one who is the chief shepherd. He has died and he lives forevermore. He will never die. I will die and the elders here will die and every one of us will die. And we are hoping and praying that the church continues on and is not dependent on any one leader here. So I'm so thankful that in my absence, we have competent men who stand up, open up God's word and preach it to you, and that the church here is eager to receive the teachings of the scriptures, regardless of who is teaching them. So I just want to publicly thank, and I think they deserve a a thank you, and I praise the Lord for the men who stood up here and preached, uh, for Michael and for Mark and for Justin, three men from our church that God has gifted to handle God's word. Thank you. Thank you for preaching and teaching and feeding the flock. Just, just so you know, it is such a gift to be able to walk away from your church family that you love so much and to be uh, in, in, an, many, in our case, we were in another state on the other side of the country for a couple weeks, and then this last week up in Tahoe to be away and to know the church is in good hands, uh, that, that, that obviously Jesus is head of the church, uh, but also that the Lord has appointed under shepherds that love and care for the church and are competent to feed it. So we're so thankful. Um, we've been working through the gospel of Mark. Uh, I have been doing that uh, prior to the summer. And then this last month, we kind of stopped that. And we've been in the Psalms, working through a psalm at a time. Each uh, man who preached worked through a psalm. And I thought... As I get back in the pulpit, rather than jumping right back into Mark where we left off, I wanted to pause and do something that's a little more topical. Uh, we wanted to do an expositional sermon that addresses a particular topic uh, to help us think through what we're doing here as a church and why we're doing it and how to do it well. So the normal thing you would experience if you come to Grace Rancho or you invite a friend next week The ordinary way that we approach the scriptures is sequential exposition, working through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, section by section, verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, because that, we believe, is the best way to give the church a proper diet of the Word of God. But from time to time, I think it's appropriate to go, okay, let's look at a topic that we really feel would be helpful for our church family. The topic this morning is going to be the topic of the local church and how it fits into the life of the believer. And I want to begin by having you turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, where we get a little bit of a window into the heart of the apostle Paul. And I think the section that we're going to look at will be familiar to you, but I want to draw out some observations, seal them in your mind before we get to the meat of the sermon this morning. You're probably familiar with verse 21. Start there. 
where Paul is reflecting on his ministry to the Lord and what has happened to him. He's in prison. He's preaching the gospel, but he's confident and rejoicing that no matter what happens to him, Christ will be glorified. And he's thinking about his own life, and he's thinking about the possibility that he might die in prison or die for Christ. And he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is, if I live, my life will be revolving around Jesus Christ, to know him, to serve him and obey him and to advance his purposes. That is why I exist. And if I die doing so, then I go to be with him and it is gain. Say, this is one of those Verses that's so familiar, we've heard it a hundred times, and it maybe ceases to have the same glamour it had the first time we encountered it. Continue reading when they look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, you know, I might die. But if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I have a body, if I got lungs that are breathing, and a brain that's working, and strength to live, what that means for me is that I am going to invest in the labor for the gospel. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to labor. Look at that word. Labor. Work. If I am still alive, if there's breath in my lungs, if I have opportunity, if I have strength at all, what you will find me doing, says Paul, is I'm going to be engaged in fruitful labor. I love this mindset. That if I have opportunity, if I'm still alive and kicking, and until I'm in that casket six feet under, what am I going to be doing? It's work. I'm getting to work with the task that God has given me. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part to be with Christ. Man, if you just kill me, that'd be great. I'd go be with my Savior. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Okay, we've heard to live as Christ, and sometimes that's so vague and abstract. Like, what does that mean, to live for Christ? To say, to live as Christ. Okay, work that out in your life. Like, that might be a little more hard to apply. And he gets a little more specific, that he says, it's going to look like fruitful labor for me. So if I'm going to be alive, it's gonna be, I'm going to be working, I'm going to be... Aiming to produce fruit in my life. Let's get even more specific. What does he mean when he says to live is Christ? The answer is found in verse 25. Look at this. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, with you, Philippians, for your progress and joy in the faith. What does it look like to live for Christ? What does it mean to say to live is Christ and to die is gain? What does it mean to say if I got breath in my lungs, I'm going to be committed to faithful, fruitful labor? What does it mean? It means, according to Paul, that I am going to work for your progress and joy in the faith in the truths 
of Christianity and the gospel itself, my job, my joy, my calling, my vocation, the labor that I am going to commit myself to is not myself, but you, Philippians. That's what he's saying. I'm going to live and die for your good, for your progress, for your growth, for your maturity, for your joy. That's what I'm going to lay my life down toward. He is speaking of laying his life down, of working for the health and growth and maturity of who? The Philippian church. And did you realize that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, that Paul said, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here's the observation. Here's the conclusion I draw. That if we are to be faithful Christians, then we ought to look at the heart of Paul and say, Lord, make that my own heart. And where I do not measure up to Paul's heart, Lord, I repent and I want to turn from other ways of living and align myself with Paul as he follows Christ. And here, the heart of Paul is to pour his life out for the joy and progress of the church in Philippi. Let me be up front with you about my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to persuade you that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the center of your life. That your life ought to revolve around Christ And if it revolves around Christ, you should be laying your life down for Christ's people. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be the sun of your solar system where everything revolves around that. And we'll go on to say, I don't think that means you all quit your jobs and you all try to become pastors and full-time ministers in some way. That's not what is meant by this. It is meant to say that every other thing that you do serves the purpose of pouring in to the service of Christ and his purposes and his goals in the church of Jesus Christ. That the church is God's plan A for the universe. That it is through the church the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that to be involved in the church is to be involved in the greatest enterprise this world has ever seen. And so I want to call you to lay down your life for the church of the living God. You've made commitments. You've made commitments to your work. You have commitments to your family. You have commitments maybe to a sports team. You have commitments to a hobby, perhaps. We all have commitments. We've made them. We're very active. Some families are going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. One calendar is just glutted with so much opportunity, and it is often the case in the American church that Christians are not making much time for the main thing. They're not pouring their lives out for the progress and joining the faith of other believers. They've really so filled their lives with other commitments that the main commitment, the main commitment to serve Jesus Christ and to serve his bride has been crowded out. So this morning, the topic we want to focus on is the call that Christ has put on our life to fully invest in the church of God. I want to give you four reasons for that, and we're going to jump around and look at different passages of Scripture. I want to give you four biblical reasons why I believe the church should be prioritized in the life of the Christian. Four biblical reasons why the church should be prioritized in the life of the believer. So if you are a believer and the church has kind of been peripheral to your experience, 
I want to call you to consider what the scriptures teach about why you need the church and why you ought to invest your life in the church. And we're going to start with this reason, that you should love the church and you should prioritize the church because Jesus does. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts, Romans. If you're in Romans, just keep going that direction. You'll hit Acts. And in this section, Paul is called the elders of Ephesus to speak to them before he departs. And he's kind of got these last words for these men. And whenever you've got an apostle who's speaking his last words, you want to perk up. You want to listen. And he's given these kind of parting words to these elders at this church. And there's some glorious moments. And we don't have time to look at all of them. But you see at the second half of verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house and testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that he has not hidden anything from them. He's been teaching them, pouring out his life to them in public and in private and in the synagogue and in the houses. Verse 24, skip down a little bit. I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, we're seeing a window into Paul's heart. My, my life is not precious. My life is not worth holding on to. I, I want to pour it out for the calling that God's put on my life. Skip ahead again. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he's saying, if you reject the gospel, it is not because you didn't hear from me. I gave you all of it. I gave you the whole counsel. I gave you everything you need to know. I'm innocent of your blood. If you perish, it's not on my hands. I gave it all to you. And then look at verse 28. And this is the heart of any pastor who loves the church. I think it's the heart of any churchman, any churchwoman, anyone who's following Christ and wants to see the glory of God put on display. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. I want you to care. That word is the word for shepherd. It could also... Translated pastor, the, the idea of caring and pastoring this church. I want you to care for the church of God. And then look at this. Which he obtained with his own blood. How did Christ purchase the church? Through his blood. You could evaluate the preciousness of a thing, of an object, by the amount that someone's willing to pay for it. You're only willing to pay five bucks for a thing or a couple dollars for a thing. You might not see it as that valuable. If you're willing to pay lots of money, thousands of dollars for something, you might, it might indicate you see it as much more valuable. But there are a few things that we say I'm willing to die for. 
I'm willing to die for my family. I'm willing to die for my friends. Jesus valued the church. His heart of love is so filled with compassion and affection for the church, the people of God, that he would pay for it, not with some money, not with a loan that he picked up, not with some few bucks that he found, that he would purchase the church, that he would obtain the church through the shedding of his own blood. Jesus loves the church. Jesus sought out the church. The images that come to our mind when we look at the New Testament are the images of a shepherd that loves the sheep that has wandered off, and the shepherd could say, nah, it's too much. That'd be so inconvenient to spend a day going through the hillsides looking for that sheep. That sheep isn't even one of my favorite sheep anyway. I'd let him go. That sheep's caused me all kinds of problems. That sheep didn't like me to begin with. So I'm just going to let that sheep wander. And so the images we get in the New Testament are these images of the shepherd saying, where's my sheep? I love my sheep. I'm going to go find my sheep. I'm going to leave the 99, and I'm going to go find this precious one that I love, even at great cost to myself. And this is the gospel, church, is that we all have gone astray like sheep, and that we've all committed sin against God. And that we all are in deserving of God's righteous wrath. But God in his immense love has sent the good shepherd who has not only come to round us up and bring us home, but to lay down his life, to make payment for the sins we committed, to conquer sin, to overcome our own resistance with his love and give us new hearts. And that he would rise from the dead and that he would demonstrate his power over death and sin. And that he would say out to all who would ever listen, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the gospel message. It is a story of Christ's love and affection for his bride, the church. You're not yet a Christian. The gates of heaven are wide open for you. Christ has died and rose for you to be able to come by faith and trust in the sacrifice so your sins can be forgiven. And I would invite you to come. And for those of us who have already come and trusted Christ, don't you want to be like Jesus? In fact, doesn't the scripture call us to follow the example of Christ? That we are to follow in his footsteps? That the things that Jesus loves should be the things that we love? That the affection that Jesus has for the church should be imitated in our lives? And so what do we, what do we say? We, we say, if Christ has so loved the church that he would lay down his life, that he would leave the glories of heaven, that he would die on the cross, that he would do everything necessary to secure the redemption of his bride... If that's how Christ has loved the church, then how ought we to love the church as well? And you could ask yourself, does my love for the bride of Christ follow the example of Christ's love for the church? Am I imitating him? in the way I love the church. I'm not talking about the church building. I'm not talking about the institution necessarily. I'm talking for the blood-bought, redeemed people that God has put you here with, that you've committed to, that you love. I'm talking about them. Do you love the church? Because Christ does. And if we are to be like him, you will love the church. 
In fact, you might ask yourself, what does it say? What does it say about our love for Jesus if we can't stand the church? Is that even possible? To say, Jesus, I love you, but your bride, I can't stand her. I don't want to have her anywhere near me. Jesus, I love you, but I'm not going to gather with all the other people who love you. Don't want to be with them. Don't want them in my life. Just to make this point even more clear, you're in Acts chapter 20. Turn back a few chapters to Acts chapter 9. Where where Saul, who literally is trying to kill Christians and trying to smush out the church in the first century... It says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul, still bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asking for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, that is what they called early Christians, uh, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy wants to identify where the Christians are and go hunt them down and arrest them. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Who does he say? Does he say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say that. Does he say, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? That to persecute the people of God, to persecute the church of God is so uh, close to the heart of Christ that Jesus takes it personally. You mess with God's people, you mess with my bride, you mess with my church, you are messing with me, says Jesus. You are persecuting me. Now let's flip that logic around. You want to love the church? You want to serve the church? You want to bless the church? That is an expression of your love for Jesus. If you want to love Jesus, serve Jesus, obey Jesus, that will be expressed in your love in serving and blessing the church. Jesus will say to those people who are serving the church, he will take your service to the people and he will count that as service to himself. See that? And when we serve one another and we lay down our lives for one another, we are serving Jesus. He so identifies with his church that to serve the church is to serve the Lord himself. Ephesians 1.21 says Jesus is the head of the church. Matthew 16 says the church is the institution that Jesus is unstoppably building, that even hell itself cannot stop its advance. 1 Peter 2 says that the church is his spiritual house, that he is constructing. The church is the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. How could it be that a blood-bought, redeemed Christian who has been saved from the world and brought into the family could then turn and reject the very thing for which Christ died? So Paul would say that I'm going to live for Christ, and then he would go on to say that I'm going to live for the progress and joy and the faith of the church of Philippi. And if you are saying, I want to serve Jesus, let me make it very practical, that you could look around in this room and say, how am I going to serve these people? Because these people are the ones that God has put in my life, and I'm going to commit to them, I'm going to lay my life down for them, I'm going to bless them, I'm going to teach them, I'm going to encourage them, I'm going to pray for them. Why? Because you love Jesus. Secondly, here's, here's a second reason why you should... Put the church right there in the center of your life. 
We've already alluded to this. It's because you love Christians. If you don't love Christians, you're not born again. I'm just going to say that because that's what John says in 1 John. I want to invite you to turn to 1 John. It's toward the end of your Bible. Hidden Revelation, you're too far. After 2 Peter there. And in chapter 4, verse 7, John writes, Beloved, speaking to Christians, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Love has a source. It's not you. Love doesn't well up from within you like some spring that you have inherent to you. Love flows from God. Love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do you know you've been born of God? How do you know that you know God? Well, whoever loves has been born of God. Skip down a little bit to chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, watch this, loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. If you love the Father, you love the Father's children. If you love God, you love the people of God. If you love the God of the church, you love the church. Those who have been born again are known by their love, and it's not, in these verses, catch this here, it's not just some abstract love, warm fuzzies, I feel good about people, I like being around them. It's talking about a specific love, a focused love, that if you love God, if you truly love the Father, then that love spills out, pours out in love toward other Christians. You love those who have been born of God. That's what he's getting at. And so one of the greatest evidences of the new birth, of regeneration, of new life, that you're a new creation, is that prior to your salvation, you didn't really want much to do with the church. Or you attended, and you had this great big shell around you that you'd let no one in. But when you were saved and redeemed, the church became your family, and you came out of that shell, and you said, I love you, and I invite you in, and I'm going to invite myself into your life as well, because I need you. We love the church when we're made alive. And there's a big problem if we have no affection for other Christians. In fact, turn back to chapter 2 in 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light, uh, whoever says you're a Christian, I know God, I have a relation with God, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, still in darkness. If there are people that are Christians that God has put in your life and you just don't like them, you hate them, you ignore them, you reject them, you condemn them, you want to banish them from your life, you want nothing to do with them, that is what the Bible calls hate. And if that is how you feel about other Christians, then according to this text that you are still in darkness because the new life that God has given you melts the heart, it humbles your pride and enables you to love people who don't deserve to be loved. You love other Christians, and so you begin to prioritize the church. And so Paul will say things like this. 
In chapter 12, verse 5 of Romans, we are all members of one another. He will say in chapter 12, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, our love has bound us together in an affection so deep that your suffering becomes mine and my suffering becomes yours and your joy is shared with me and with others and that we are going through this life together. And that all the experiences, the ups and the downs that we could experience in this life, we are going through together. That your pains are mine and my pains are yours and the joys are shared. The burdens are halved and the joys are doubled. A symptom of a loving church is that we feel the aches and the pains and the joys and the celebrations of the people around us. Because we are so deeply embedded in their lives. That's what a loving church looks like. It's a good diagnostic question, isn't it? So, so if a, we ought to love the church, well, what does it look like to love the church? Well, one of the ways you would know that you love the church is to ask yourself, do you feel the spiritual aches and the spiritual pains of the people around you, Christians you're here in this room with? Do you know their joys and do you share their joy when they are joyful? Do you rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping? Do you have any idea of the life that's going on all around you, of the people in this room? Because love binds us that way. I remember hearing the, a statement that has stuck with me uh, where an older pastor was kind of commenting on how he knew that a man or a woman was growing in their maturity. What was a mark of this maturity? And one of the things he said was one of the chief marks of a Christian that's growing in love was that if you asked them how they were doing, they would maybe briefly express how they felt, but very quickly would move on to explaining all the things that the people they love are going through. A mature Christian finds his own joy in the joys of others his own sorrows and the sorrows of others. He or she has been made so humble that his life or her life is more oriented around the others that God has put in his life. So when we think about how we're doing, if, if we're growing in love, one of the things that happens to us is we can't help but think about the people around us. How are you doing? You start talking about your kids. You start talking about your parents. You start talking about the people you're trying to disciple. You start talking about your neighbors that are still rejecting the gospel. You start talking about that hard person at work. Why? Because those things are so near and dear to your heart because you're a growing Christian that has a heart of love for people. I think it's an evidence of the grace of God maturing us in love is that our Lives are bound up in the lives of the people we love. Who is yours? Uh, Are you loving the church family? Christians ought to give their lives to the church. Because Jesus loves the church and because of the new life that Jesus has given us, we love the church as well. Let's look at a third reason why we ought to love and prioritize the church The third reason is this, is because you are needy. You are needy. Mark that down. Remember it. 
and don't forget it. Because a lot of harm comes upon Christians who forget that they are desperately needy. Job chapter 5 verse 7 says that man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Life is hard. Life is challenging. I remember reading a historian say, uh, what he, 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 he wrote, uh, and it's coming to me, it's coming to me, hold on, this is what it was. History could make a stone weep. Isn't that true? That this fallen world is just tragic. And there are so much things going on in our lives that are just so hard. One of the things we do at Tahoe, uh, that's where it was last week, and the family all sits around one night and we talk about things we're learning and what's going on in our lives. One of the things I think the Lord has been teaching me and what I shared with the group there was, it's really been impressed upon me that life is challenging, difficult. I mean, I've got to deal with my own sin to start with that. It keeps recurring, and I've got to go to war against the flesh, not to mention the challenging things outside of my own heart and the difficult situations that we find ourselves in, like, I don't know, a pandemic that won't end, and all kinds of other issues, and uh, the potential for navigating that and misstepping and wanting to be faithful to God's word and do the right thing and shepherd a church and to love people. It's challenging. To be a good husband is challenging. To be a good father is difficult. To be a good friend is hard. To be a good pastor requires the grace of God. I don't have any resources in and of myself to do these things well. And then you start pastoring like I have these last three years. And I start realizing, man, people have issues. And you got to help them too. And so I got to get my own stuff and I got to be helping other people and you got to walk through life with them and you're trying to shepherd and you're praying and you're going, God, I can do very little here. Uh, In fact, I can do so little, I'll call it nothing. I can do nothing. Lord, use me. I want you to use me to help others. Man, we are needy. We can't do any of this stuff on our own. We need God's help so desperately. And did you realize that one of the ways that God has promised to meet our needs is not that he directly zaps you with some message from on high or some power from on high that meets your need right in the moment. Of course, he can and at times does do things like that. But do you know he ordinarily ministers grace to us through the lives of other Christians that he has put you around? Let me prove this to you in this text. Look at, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Passage that we refer to a lot in our membership class. Chapter 12, verse 14. The metaphor is used, I'm sure you're very familiar with. Paul writes, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. You're talking about your physical body. You're not an ear, just one big ear. You're not just an eyeball. You're not just a foot. A body has all those things. Body has eyes, ears, feet, and all of them are different. They're shaped differently. They have different strengths, different weaknesses. And, And look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of his 
in the body. That is, now he's talking about this church, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And if, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. Pause right there. So let's say you're an eye, or let's say you're a nose, or an ear, or mouth. And in this room, there are people who are not like you. They're very different. There's a foot in here, and there's a hand in here, and there's other various body parts that you don't have that would be useful. You know what Paul's getting at here? It's not a single one of us is made with all the different parts. Every single one of us is made with limitations. So that it is God's design that we will humbly grow interdependent on other Christians to be ears where we don't have ears, and to be a mouth where we don't have a mouth, and to be eyes where we don't have eyes. And on the other side of the coin, that we are hands where people don't have hands, and we are eyes where people don't have eyes. We are needy, and God has so composed the church to meet the needs that you have. It's to the degree that Paul says, here's something you're not allowed to say about other people in your church family. Here's what you're not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say, I don't need any of these people. (laughs) You can't look at the people around this room and say, Man, maybe I could get some help from them, and they got some good advice, but that guy right there, I don't need him. Or or that girl over there, she's too difficult. I'm not going to involve my life with hers. You're not allowed to do that. He even goes on to say, look at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You can't get rid of them without causing harm to the body. You try to get rid of the weaker parts of the church, the less mature. You try to eradicate all the spiritual babies from the congregation. And what happens to the church? The church begins to grow tragically unhealthy. Because we actually all need to act like spiritual parents and to act like spiritual parents. We need to be raising up spiritual infants. We need strong. We need weak. We need eyes. We need ears. We need feet. We need hands. We need all of these different pieces of the puzzle to fit together. And we are not allowed to lift ourselves up in pride and say, I don't need you. I wonder if there's anyone here that is too proud to use those words, I need you. It's really easy to be the one who's needed, isn't it? Someone calls you and needs help, man, you're going to be ready with your Superman cape to give them anyone they, anything they need. You're going to go help them move the furniture. You're going to provide some counsel. You're going to give them some wisdom. You're going to recommend a book. How quick are you to ask for help? How quick are you to be on the other end of the phone saying, hey, I need some prayer right now? I'm really down. I need some encouragement. I don't know what to think about this. I need some wisdom. I'm just about to fall into temptation. I need some accountability. You are needy. And God has given you a church family. And you are limited. And God has provided people around you to help you through this life. 
Don't try to go through life as an eye that has no feet, no hands, no ears, no mouth. You won't, it doesn't work. But God has so composed the body that we can't look at each other and say, I don't need you. We need each other. So the most mature Christian in this room needs everyone here in various ways and in various degrees. When's the last time you said, please help? If not, why not? Why, when life is so obviously difficult, do we refrain from seeking help? Is it pride that is this giant roadblock in the way of our growth and progress in Christ? You are needy. We are needy. So God has given us the church. Here's the last reason we are going to prioritize the church in our lives, give our lives to serve the church. This is a longer point. You might accuse me of squeezing many points into one. I don't mind that. The fourth point is this. Prioritize the local church because it's God's mechanism for preserving the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. We want to preserve the gospel for future generations, and we want to proclaim the gospel to foreign nations. Made it rhyme for you, so you can remember that. Preserve the gospel for future generations. You want your kids to hear the gospel here, don't you? You want the church to still be vibrant and alive when your grandkids are here. You want generations upon generations of Rancho Cucamonga to hear the gospel because our church has remained faithful, that we haven't gone liberal and we haven't abandoned the scriptures and we haven't abandoned the gospel. How is that to be done? It is the church's job to preserve the generation like a baton passing it on for every generation. Preserve the gospel for every generation. And it's also, and this is the point B of number four, is to proclaim. It's the church's job. It's his role to proclaim the gospel to all nations. The church exists to be the place where the truth of the gospel is protected, passed on, proclaimed. And if the truth is not being preserved here, where else will it be preserved? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I considered doing the whole message just on this text, but I'll leave it as this final point. Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, who's something of a church planter, church revitalizer, pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul writes in verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm, but if I, sorry, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's unpack that real quick. Paul wants Timothy to stay and serve this church. He wants him to know how they ought to behave in, in what he calls the household of God. He's calling the church the household of God. You see that? These are family words. God is clearly the head of the church. 
We are his people. We are his family. This is his household. I want you to know how to behave in God's household. Then he says, look at this, which is the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of the people of God, uh, the church of the living God. Consider those words. Look down at those words. Living God. Not a tribal God. Not an imaginary God. God is not an idea. God is not a concept. God is alive. He is the living God from eternity to eternity. Alpha and Omega. And God has chosen to invest himself in the church that he loves. This is his household. And it is his church. And he is the living God. When we are singing songs, we're not just doing this because it makes us feel good, like it's some psychotherapy for our hearts. We feel better when we leave. There is a living God who presides over our meetings, who hears our singing, who hears our prayers. That is why we pray the way we pray and sing the way we sing and preach the way we preach is because God is real. He lives From all eternity he lives, and he will live for all eternity. And we exist for him, and we gather for him. And the services that we do here are not shaped around what we think we should do, but around what God says we ought to do. About God saying, I am real, I am holy, I am righteous, I am true, I am just. And I have revealed myself in my word, and we come in humble adoration to know him. The church is his household, and he is the living God. And what is the church supposed to do? Look at this. It is to be a pillar and buttress of what? I ask again, where will people find the truth in our generation, if not the church? Where are they going to go? Wikipedia? Where where are people going to find truth about who they are and who is God and how they are to live? Where are they going to go? Is is the media going to give them the truth? Is the government going to give them the truth? Where are they going to go? The secular or philosophers over there are going to give them the truth? Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the church because that's the only place that is standing up and saying, God has spoken. And the church exists to be the pillar and buttress or support of the truth. Timothy, who got this letter, would have in his mind, the moment he read those words, an image would have come to his mind because in Ephesus was the great temple of the Greek goddess Diana. And that temple was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent edifice. And it had 127 giant marble pillars that upheld this beautiful building. It had these buttresses, which are uh, parts of a building that support the upper parts of the building. These things were magnificent, great sculpting went into this temple. And Timothy Hearing this idea of pillars and buttresses would have immediately thought of this grand edifice of this temple to a goddess. But Paul puts a spin on it. This is not a temple to a false god. He says the church, the people, the ecclesia, the gathering of the redeemed, the people of God who serve the living God, they are the supports, the pillars that uphold, that protect that lift high, that support the truth. That's what the church does. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we do every Sunday and throughout the week is we say, God has spoken. He's told us who he is and how sinners can be saved and how we ought to live. We know the truth. 
And the world is lost. And how will they come to know if the church abandons the truth? The church ought to be the place that upholds and protects and preserves and passes on the truth of the living God. That's why we preach. That's why we sing. That's why we disciple. That's why we evangelize. We are all responsible to preserve and protect and pass on the gospel. That's what we're doing here. For the glory of God to make sure his reality is made known and preserved and passed on from generation to generation. Let me say that this is not the work of a man or a group of men or a group of leaders. This is the responsibility of the church, the whole church. This is what the whole church is. According to Paul, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. That means every member bears the responsibility to protect and preserve and pass on the truth of God. That's another really good reason to prioritize your church. Because you have been called to this great and glorious calling to ensure that the truth is not lost with our generation. To illustrate this, I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'll use it again. I remember reading about a pastor in Romania at the time when Romania was suffering great persecution. The church there had kind of gone underground, and yet this church was trying to train up other leaders and ensure that the Churches were being strengthened with leaders who were competent to teach the Word of God and to pass it on and to teach their congregations. And this pastor in Romania had been able to leave their, that country and come to the States where he was given just a boatload of good theological books. And his heart was, man, I want to bring, I want to bring these, these good books back to the pastors in Romania so they can be trained and so they can understand better what they're doing, what their role is, and how to teach sound doctrine. But he knew that if he got on a plane and flew into Romania with a giant suitcase of theological books, he would be found out and their church would be shut down. We started strategizing, praying, Lord, how can I get these books to the pastors? Well, providentially, on the same flight that he was taking back to Romania, he found himself on the same flight as a Christian choir. Lots of different members in the choir. So he hatched a plan. Rather than him trying to load all his books into one suitcase and bring them all in, he gave them to the choir members, one book at a time. They each just took one. And their agreement was to meet back up when they're in Romania and gather them all together so they could get them through. In other words, if he got caught and he was the only one with all the books, guess what happens to all the books? Gone. Guess how many books are going to Romania? Zero. But if everyone had the book, if everyone took responsibility, if one person goes down, how many books are still getting through? All the rest. If he goes down as the pastor, how many books are getting through? All the rest. And it worked out so they were able to make it through and then regather and then give these books to all the different pastors and they benefited greatly. And that, I feel, is a metaphor for the church. If the church is built upon the gifts of one person, it will fail. Listen, it will fail 
if the church is built on the gifts of one person. If the truth is built up in one person, like this know-it-all, has-it-all, the, the big brain has all the doctrine in their minds, if it's built on that person, it will fail. What is our model of ministry? Is teach all here. Entrust all with the gospel. Give everyone a book. Let everyone learn and grow. Let everyone take responsibility to preserve and protect the gospel and to pass it on. And by the grace of God, if someone's taken out, if the Lord takes the leaders here and it's left up to the rest of the church to keep pressing on, I think the Lord can preserve this church. Why? Because our goal is to never build it on any small group of people, but to build the church up in strength, in doctrine, so that the church will last, and the gospel will be preserved, and generations will hear the gospel after us. Doctrinal faithfulness requires that every single member of the church take responsibility to know and preserve and pass on the truth. Philippians 1.22, we started with it, we'll end with it. Paul said, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's what he said. And the fruitful labor he was referring to was to work for the progress and the joy of the church. Let me ask you, as long as the Lord gives you breath, as long as the Lord keeps you alive, What are you going to live for? Let me call upon you to lay your life down like Paul to say, as long as I have life and breath, I will pour myself out for the body of Christ. An imitation of my Savior for his glory so that the truth will be preserved and proclaimed. Let's pray. Lord, just another reminder of our own neediness. Unless you move, Spirit, there's no way we could do any of these things. So I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a supernatural love for you that overflows into care and concern for the church, that we, like Paul, would labor for the progress and joy of other believers that we would make it our aim to please you in all things and to build up the church, that we would seek to imitate you, Lord, in your love for the church. Give us a heart that imitates yours. Give us affections that follow yours. Give us wisdom that helps us navigate how to do this. And may you be glorified in us. May Grace Rancho continue to preach your word and your truth for generations to come. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.